Dr. Andreas Umland is an analyst at the Stockholm Center of Eastern European Studies at the Swedish Institute of International Affairs. He is also an associate professor of political science at the National University of Cave Mohilla Academy, and he's an expert in Eastern European politics. Dr. Umland, thank you for joining me on Ukraine Watch. Thanks for having me. I'm really excited to have you on because I've been following your work for years. And one of your main areas of study is the far right. Uh, in the past, you've described the, the story of the far right in Ukraine as really a non-story. And that's because of perhaps the lack of support of the anti-democratic far right movement um, in Ukraine or among the Ukrainian electorate. Um, but also how little influence it's had on Ukrainian politics compared to other European countries, such as, say, France, where Marie Le Pen got, I think, over 40% of the vote. Um, there, So there really is no far-right representation in Ukraine's government. So let's talk about Russia. Uh, as far as the, the influence of the far-right or fascism goes, how would you describe the current regime in the Kremlin? I think already after the annexation of Crimea, uh, one could have started, if not before, to describe the re regime as radical right, because you had from 2014 onwards, if not before, not only authoritarian uh, institutions, but also uh, more and more ideological elements that were uh, reminiscent of the far right, imperialism, law and order, sexism, nationalism, traditionalism, all of these things um, were coming up already before 2014, but since 2014, they have increased markedly. And a colleague of mine at uh, Stockholm, Martin Krag and myself, we have done a study that uh, is hopefully coming out next year of uh, the political rhetoric of um, Nikolai Patrushev and Sergei Narishkin as the two people around Putin in the close closer circle around Putin who have repeatedly made political and geopolitical statements. And what you can see there and in Putin's speeches um, and also in other statements by the regime or by ideologists, if you want to call them, of the regime is actually what I would call a far-right ideology, um, not just far-right ideological elements, but actually in, um, a more or less coherent, um, ultra-conservative, reactionary, restorative, revanchist um, ideology. And some people have now started since... Um, well, some people have already earlier used the term fascism for um, Putin's regime. And more recently, since uh, the big invasion of February, more and more people, uh, especially in Ukraine, but also outside Ukraine, are now using um, consciously and uh, pointedly uh, the term fascism for this regime. I think that's more complicated because fascism presumes a, a revolutionary ideology, at least um, in the way it is used, for instance, uh, by the International Association for Comparative Fascist Studies and the journal Fascism, uh, the Journal of Comparative Fascist Studies. There you would um, usually mean 
movements and uh, politicians and regimes that are in one way or another revolutionary. And, um, and that is still lacking, I would say, for the internal functioning of the Russian Federation. However, I think one can now rethink about the special military operation in um, eastern and southern Ukraine, um, if one interprets it in hermeneutic terms, uh, that means from the viewpoint of the perpetrators of uh, the Russian leadership, one can perhaps perceive that as a as a fascist um, operation in that it has this sort of a cleansing liberation, um, uh, if you like, revolutionary element. Um, but, but that is a complicated discussion that goes actually far beyond uh, traditional fascist studies and would have to be outlined in more detail. So I want to define some terms, because we've been talking about the Russian regime as far right or fascist. So let's get maybe flesh that out a little bit about what we're talking about as far as does that go not just to philosophy or rhetoric, but but policy too? How, how does that play out in Russia? Well, you have an authoritarian regime, you have um, an educational uh, policy and a memory policy, memory policies that are very much about the glorious uh, Russian nation and its uh, achievements and territorial acquisitions and so on. And um, more and more cultural policies uh, promoted by the state or um, conducted by the state or financed by the states are about uh, um, the Russian nation and its, uh, you know, uh, glorious past and present and future. Um, that is a very, very wide field. But the most vivid expression, of course, um, of all of this are the foreign policies of, of Russia. Imperialist, colonialist um, policies, hegemonic policies, Although, as already indicated, I would make here a distinction um, in the policies towards Ukraine in that they are analytically, from an analytical viewpoint, imperialist and colonialist. And um, uh, this is a war and this is an occupation and aggression and so on. But from the Russian ultranationalist point of view, they are... This is actually a domestic policy. It's not a foreign policy. It's something about, so to say, of the Western part of Russia called Ukraine. Yeah, and so it's a, it's a domestic operation. Um, so, um, and it's of course the most violent and bloody and um, um, most destructive uh, um, foreign policy. Um, but oddly, it is from a from the viewpoint of the perpetrators, not a foreign policy. And here you have the most, you know, vivid expression of right-wing um, fascist, uh, if you like, approaches in that actually people are killed en masse and uh, deported, um, put into fil filtration camps and so on. That is actually looking already very similar to, uh, uh, let's say, the policies of, um, of Nazi Germany or uh, fascist Italy. Okay, so... I guess every, you know, every country has their either education ministry or education policy when it comes to what they teach in schools about their own country. And maybe there's a difference between nationalism in the sense that a country is saying, hey, look at us, we're great, as opposed to dangerous ideas of look at us, 
not only are we great, but this justifies us invading other countries and killing people. Is that kind of what you're saying? Yes, I think that is the, I would say, um, the, the viewpoint of the Moscow leadership um, on much of the post-Soviet space. And that is also how it is um, uh, conceived outside Russia as a hegemonic imperialist colonialist policy. But again, there is um, here, uh, as I would think, an important distinction between um, the policies of Russia towards Belarus and Ukraine on the one side and the policies of Russia towards uh, Central Asia, the Southern, Southern Caucasus, the Baltic states um, and Moldova. So, uh, and maybe also other regions of the world. So, um, yeah, and, and here is then also the, um, the idea important that, uh, you know, what kind of Russian nation is that, uh, to be and uh, so it has to be um, the the Russian nation includes actually Ukraine and Belarus, which are just seen as local sort of ethnological groups, and um, that uh, if necessary need to be cleansed and liberated and um, uh, reshaped um, according to Moscow's views. So that is a here I think an important distinction that perhaps has not been made clear enough. Um, it's, of course, a very offending, um, uh, um, offensive Russian approach to simply not recognize uh, the Belarusian and the Ukrainian nations. And so um, so don't, people don't want to go into this discourse. But um, if we think in terms of what is called perpetrator studies, that is a sort of a sub division of genocide uh, studies, uh, which looks um, not only on on the crimes committed and not only on the victims committed, but also on the thinking of the perpetrators behind these crimes and um, the perpetrator's view of the victim, then I think uh, there is a clear distinction to be made between um, these general imperial um, Russian policies uh, towards non-Russians and to the supposed white Russians and, and little Russians of Belarus and, and Ukraine. So the way you describe this, these sort of far-right ideologies that are, you know, informing and, and creating policy in Russia, it sounds like you're describing mainstream Russian thought. Is that the case? Yes, unfortunately, that has now become mainstream Russian thought. That in, That was in the 1990s, still something to be found on the margins. So, for instance, the 1997 uh, sort of uh, major, I would say, work of post-Soviet Russian fascism called Osnovy Geopolitiki, Foundations of Geopolitics by Alexander Dugin, has also a part on Ukraine. And what Dugin has described in 1997 is now actually uh, official Russian policy, uh, largely also with the same um, uh, justification, uh, you know, that uh, there's no Ukrainian nation, um, the uh, the whole Black Sea uh, shore of Ukraine should belong to Russia, um, uh, all the things that were still, uh, but that were still outrageous in the 1990s have now actually become um, the official uh, rhetoric of uh, Putin, Medvedev, um, and other representatives of the regime. 
So what what we've seen, I mean, this entire war has been just brutal and almost seeming nonsensical as far as you know why it's being prosecuted. But the the most brutal, it seems, parts of the war or the most the areas that are taking on the the most as far as uh, attention or attacks from the Russian Federation are the more eastern and southern parts of Ukraine where Russian is spoken more broadly. And I, I feel like um, this war is perhaps less about ethnicity or maybe not about ethnicity or language at all, but but about culture and values. And that um, the, the Ukrainian side seems to represent a fight against tyranny on on behalf of the democratic world, although that may be an oversimplification. What what would you assess it as? Is it is that kind of what's going on here? Yeah, I think first of all, one uh, one shouldn't try too hard to see a clear line here on Russia's side. I mean, that is something that we know from many other cases of ultranationalism, imperialism, and fascism which are often in colonialism, which are often very inconsistent. And that, you know, they say one one day, you know, the, they say, you know, we love the Ukrainians and the other day we, we hate the Ukrainians. And then we, you know, it's a, it's a hodgepodge of ideas that uh, does not have necessarily an inner logic. Um, and, uh, uh, and that even, uh, you know, celebrates the lack of rationality and and logic um, and you know the the sort of more classical fascist um, thinkers they have actually explicitly uh, celebrated that and that is also something that, uh, like that people like Dugin would do they would actually you know say yeah well of course um, you cannot understand that in logical and rational terms because we are illogical and we are irrational and that's why we are different from you. So, um, so I think that is, in a way, um, to, to 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 look here from for some consistency is a, is a useless endeavor. Yes, I would think that that Ukraine is defending here much more than itself, in that it is above all defending international law and the um, European security order, the coherence of uh, the entire worldwide system of states. Um, Ukraine is one of the founding. Uh, countries or republics, if you like, of the United Nations. It's it's part to uh, most of the major international treaties. It's a participant of the OSCE, a member of the Council of Europe, will soon be, I hope, a member of the European Union. So, um, and it is a, basically a regular state and and uh, russia basically says it's not and it's just our territory and you know it it does not exist actually and so um when when ukraine is defending itself it's also defending the the international order and um i would i would perhaps even emphasize this more than you know the the issue about democracy or not imagine ukraine would become an undemocratic country for some reason, you know, it's difficult to imagine, but I don't think that would have much impact on uh, on Moscow. You know, the um, the internal order uh, of uh, Ukraine is actually not so important, I think, for Moscow um, uh, in in a certain way. I mean, it, 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 the democratic aspect of Russia's political 
regime makes it even more dangerous for people like Putin. But um, I think the imperial uh, pretensions towards Ukraine and towards Belarus, they are stronger than the than the sort of anti-democratic impulse that is also there uh, with regard to Ukraine. And uh, but but Russia also behaves very hegemonically towards Belarus, which is not a, a, a democracy. So I would rather make here an emphasis perhaps on international law and borders, territorial integrity, political sovereignty. These are all the foundations of the international system. And um, if uh, Ukraine, as I foresee it, wins this war, this will be also a victory for international law, for the European security order for stability, for predictability in international relations. And that's why this is a very important um, war, not just for, for Ukraine and Eastern Europe, but um, in, at the end of the day for the entire world. Sounds like you're saying war or a Russian successful war campaign could lead to more war and more destabilization in other parts of the world. Yes, uh, I mean it would uh, encourage Russia itself then to uh, to continue, and that is what we've seen before. Uh, you know, with the sort of successful Russian uh, military interventions in Moldova or Georgia, um, uh, and then in two thousand fourteen um, uh, on Crimea and in the Donbas, um, these were sort of successes that Russia had, and that then encouraged it to go further. But also, if um, if uh, Russia sh should be uh, successful in uh, perhaps not so much in acquiring territory, but in destroying Ukraine, as it now as it is now obviously uh, trying to do, that will have uh, that could have uh, very destructive repercussions uh, around the world because uh, countries would look uh, at this uh, entirely. You know, countries which have no relation to Eastern Europe, they would look at this and they would think, well. We don't want to end up like the Ukrainians, and we don't want to be as stupid as the Ukrainians. So we should perhaps better uh, arm up, and we should perhaps get weapons of mass destruction, nuclear, chemical, biological, whatever, to protect ourselves, because we cannot rely on the international community. We cannot rely on international organizations, international law, and so on. So And, and also, uh, countries may think, well, we want to do maybe the same as Russia. We want to be free in our international actions um, and be sovereign and uh, and perhaps snatch a part of another country or destroy another country. That's why why we also need um, um, weapons of mass destruction. So um, so that could be a very dangerous precedent that um, would have far-reaching repercussions. That's why I think. Um, uh, all countries of the world should uh, should support um, Ukraine in their own interests, not not only because of empathy and solidarity with Ukraine. That's an interesting point because what you're describing seems analogous to perhaps the way, in the absence of the rule of law, um, gangsters might operate. For example, the most brutal one, in the absence of some, you know government that's following the rules is is the one that's on that comes to the top is the one that's the most brutal and if you extrapolate that to the way that countries deal with each other you might be at the brink of war all the time and perhaps even nuclear war <laughs> it sounds really scary 
Yeah, at the end of the day, I think that this is actually, um, I'm grateful that you brought that up, that the major nuclear threat is here actually not connected to the Russian-Ukrainian war. Because if you think of the options here, um, I don't think that Russia will actually use um, a nuclear weapon vis-a-vis um, Ukraine. It may try to use other uh, sort of hybrid weapons of mass destruction, let's say destroy the Novokakhovka um, dam and um, and thereby then cause mass death or, uh, you know, explode the um, Saporizhia nuclear power station or something like that in order then to, um, um, in, uh, you know, make, make large parts of Ukraine uh, radioactively uh, radioactive. So um, there could be d- different ways in which um, Russia could actually destroy um, Ukraine, and um, and perhaps the attack with a nuclear bomb is the is the least um, likely. But what could happen? Also, I don't think there will be a World War Three nuclear war with the, with the West. I think that's um, also something that is way too much discussed. What what could be the most uh, consequential? Um, result of all of this, if, for instance, uh, Russia manages to um, um, cause even more mass death in uh, in Ukraine, for instance, by exploding the uh, Saporizhia power plant or the Novokakhovka um, hydroelectric uh, um, installation, is then that other countries will arm up, uh, they will get uh, weapons of mass destruction. And once you have then many countries with we- weapons of mass destruction, the world become will become a very dangerous place because the more of these weapons there will be around, the more um, possibilities there will be for misunderstandings, technical failures, escalations, and so on. And, and then uh, if you then have even a minor um, nuclear war, not World War Three, but... Uh, a minor nuclear war, uh, if you want to call it that way, with um, a few dozen um, nuclear warheads exploding, then already there could be this could cause a nuclear winter, and could uh, and you know you you have then these. It's not actually radioactivity which is the main danger here for humanity. It's this nuclear winter where you will then have climate change um, as a result of of such a. Um, nuclear war and um, and so that is actually the the really um, important I think nuclear story to be told about this um, um, about this war the, uh, the, the sort of secondary effects it could have on the behavior of countries around the world especially imagine that there will be some sort of disruptive technology that makes it very easy to produce a nuclear weapon now it's currently it's 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 complicated costly and so on but who knows in ten years maybe. You know, somebody will invent a, a method to easily build a, a, a nuclear weapon, and then and then many countries will decide, oh, look what happened to uh, to Ukraine. We don't want this happen to us, so we need to have deterrent, some uh, deter, be able to deter our enemies. So let's quickly build um, a, few, a few nuclear bombs, and then of course, if, you, if that then becomes a chain reaction, you you may well you may have a totally different world. And then, of course, this will be a very dangerous world uh, because of um, um, many more uh, lines of, of of conflict and opportunities of mis- misunderstanding, technical failures, and so on. I want to I want to um, refer back to something that you mentioned earlier about the contradictions 
in the Russian propaganda or in, in their the way that they describe Ukrainians or Belarusians. I mean, you use some of the the pejorative terms used by Russians, for example, little Russians for Ukrainians or uh, white Russians for Belarus. So, although, it, I mean, to be fair, it, Belarus sort of translates to white Rus. <laughs> but um, that aside, it, the, the contradictions I've seen, for example, are ones where you were saying before, on the one hand, they, they'll say, oh, we love the Ukrainians. And then on the other side, or then they'll say we hate them it, it's sort of similar to the way that they will say well ukrainians are just russians on the other hand they'll use pejorative terms like Khakhle to describe them so it's sort of like they they i think what you were the point that you were trying to make before was there's no use trying to parse any of this rhetoric the 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 point is is that it, it's nonsense yeah, I mean, uh, eventually that's perhaps a question to a, a psychoanalyst, uh, analyst, you know, it's a pathology, clearly, clearly, there is something, you know, very deranged about this, um, this obsession of uh, many uh, Russian politicians, intellectuals, and also, unfortunately, some sort of ordinary Russians who sort of have this strange love-hate relationship to Ukraine and um uh, and board, which is simply, you know, it's very difficult to comprehend, actually. And uh, uh, and maybe, you know, sometimes something like this happens, I guess, also in private relationships, you know, that, you know, I, I don't know, uh, family members then or, or um, you know, former lovers or something like that have these love-hate relationships, but uh, which then lead to actually uh, somebody ending up in a... a in a hospital um and no. um uh, but i don't want to go too much into that that because i'm not a, a, a psychologist no problem well speaking of derangement uh kremlin press secretary dmitry peskov said in a recent press briefing that essentially the uh, russia's widespread bombing of ukraine which obviously includes civilian targets infrastructure targets water power were a consequence of Kyiv not willing to negotiate with Russia. So um, it looks like Peskov's words confirm what we already know, which is this war would only end if Russia stopped. So I guess the question is, uh, what would be the cost of Ukraine and the West negotiating peace with Moscow? And can the Krem and do you think the Kremlin can be counted on to uphold any bargain it would be potentially signing on to? Yeah, that would be um, actually a secondary question. But but currently, I, I, you know, this whole discussion has become uh, so theoretical uh, and uh, elusive because now we have these uh, new annexations. Um, and so, you know, it's very difficult now to to what what, what could be the, the topic then of a of a debate because uh, between diplomats, even if you just think of, um, you know, diplomats and not uh, Putin meeting Zelensky or something like that, because the Russian diplomats would have to then negotiate something that contradicts uh, the Russian constitution. Um, you know, that's, that's not a matter. They have to follow the Russian constitution, according to which, you know, these, uh, not just Crimea, but these, these other um, four oblasts are also Russian territory. So, um, and and of course Ukraine cannot give up according to its constitution um, these territories. So uh, we have now really a deadlock, and those people who 
who ask for negotiations, I mean, they they should specify how to overcome this this deadlock. Um, otherwise, it's uh, um, uh, it, it sounds good, you know. Let's stop fighting. Let's talk. Uh, let's have dialogue and and some agreement. But um, uh, the the two, the two countries would either one of them or, or actually both of them would have to renounce their own constitutions. Uh, so um, uh, that is the the paradoxical situation that we have now, and uh, so it's difficult to imagine any 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 deal coming out. And then, of course, the the question would be: even if there were a deal, you know, given to what happened what has happened to earlier deals, to the Budapest Memorandum, to the Russian-Moldovan Treaty of 1994 about the withdrawal of Russian troops from Moldova, the so-called Sarkozy Plan of 2008 about the withdrawal of Russian troops from Georgia, um, and so on. So th this, is all, uh, this is all a very theoretical and, uh, in fact, misleading uh, debate about negotiations. So... I guess perhaps the, the the way to think about ending this war would be to support Ukraine until it drives Russian forces out of its territory. Yeah, I think the only uh, the only way I could see here some um, space, let's say, for diplomacy, if uh, Russia actually, for one reason or another, agrees uh, to withdraw completely from Ukrainian territory. And then perhaps one could imagine for a transitory period something like a UN peacekeeping mission, you know, so to, to, in order to have a sort of a neutral, uh, some neutral troops um, for a few months uh, um, in, in this uh, sort of transition period before the Ukrainian state takes over again. Um, that could be perhaps a scheme, let's say, for, for Crimea, uh, where you could have uh, first, uh, some sort of international administration with with UN troops, and before then the uh, the territory is then taken back by by Ukraine. So that could be some some topic for for debate. But for that, Russia would first have to actually um, agree to uh, to uh, to a liberation of all of these uh, occupied territories. Well, Dr. Andreas Uman, I thank you very much for your time. It's been a, a really interesting discussion, and I, I hope to be able to talk to you again soon. Thanks for the good questions and um, good discussion.